is Camilla and you're listening to The Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So, let's roll! Hi everyone, welcome back to the Cat's Whisker. I am Camilla and welcome back to a very, very special episode because today, just like for every single special episode dedicated to the Beatles, I have Liam Mannion with me. He is, I mean, besides being my favorite person in the whole world, he is actually um, someone that knows the Beatles pretty well. Sometimes I think even better than me. Not personally. (laughs) I wish, I wish. Um, He's a resident musician at the Cabin Club and... um, Insert applause. (laughs) (laughs) and, and, And obviously, Eight months ago, we were here talking about the Beatles' very, very first album, Please Please Me. And now, today, 60 years ago, the Beatles released their second album with the Beatles. So just like eight months ago with Please Please Me, we had, we have to talk about it because it's an amazing album from an amazing band. And uh, we really need to talk about it, um, break it down and uh, just... <laughs> and just geek out essentially which is what we do all the time anyway but this time we're gonna be doing it on uh, record on record literally um so i just want to point out something that obviously uh this is gonna be the anniversary for all of you folks from the uk um because keep in mind that by this time the the beatles were not popular in america uh i mean VJ Records was releasing their singles, but they were constantly flopping, if you can believe it. Uh, They had also released Introducing the Beatles, which had 12 of the Please Please Me songs. Didn't do anything there. Then Capitol Records decided to publish Meet the Beatles and later on the Beatles' second album, because they obviously ignored the one that VJ had put together. And, um, I mean... It was thanks to the Ed Sullivan show that then they became relevant, but at the same time, as George uh, has been quoted saying, for every album in the UK, the publishers always wanted to release three in the States. And I guess when you plan an album, I'm sure that a lot of thought goes into the track listing, Um, but the Americans (laughs) kind of butchered it (laughs) because... They just put everything in the wrong place. Singles went where they weren't supposed to be. And uh, we're going to see that as well. But today we're celebrating the OG with the Beatles. The Beatles' second album released in the UK today. 22nd of November 1963. So, 60 years ago. And interestingly enough, I know that you're not really about what song is in which album. Which is actually pretty good because I'm going to surprise you with some of the songs that are here. I don't know if you're going to be surprised because obviously you know them all. If Fabi Girl is on it, I would be surprised. <laughs> it's the B-side to this boy. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing that really surprised me is that there are actually no singles that were ever uh, extracted from With The Beatles. Like in- Love Island. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, at least in the UK. Um, in the US, they actually published uh, an EP called Four by the Beatles that contained Rollover Beethoven, All My Loving, This Boy, and Please Mr. Postman. <laughs> so technically not all by the Beatles. They're only covers. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, two of them are by the Beatles and two of them are not. I just find it so, I mean, it's so wrong to put this boy there. I mean, the other three at least are in with the Beatles, but this boy is just so wrong because it, it doesn't belong to any album. Um, because it's... I reckon it was sabotaged by Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's his fault. <laughs> he did it. Um, well, I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> so, With the Beatles came out in between She Loves You and I Wanna Hold Your Hand, which officially launched them in America, thanks to their appearance as well at the Ed Sullivan Show. And now, there are 14 tracks... And half of them are um, Lennon-McCartney original. And there's George Harrison's very first contribution, uh, which is Don't Bother Me. Uh, the song, not the thing that I always tell you. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of That's covers. <laughs> Literally. There are a lot of covers, just like in Please Please Me. That's a lot of blanket. <sighs> I'm here so <laughs> um, All you people out there that are not from the UK or don't have British boyfriends, just find find someone that is not British. It's because someone else. <laughs> find someone else. God, you know, because <laughs> that's. It's called sophisticated humour. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the uh, Europeans can understand. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> But most of the covers that we're going to see, just like in Please Please Me, um, they and, and again, then in Beatles for Sale, because you know that there's Please Please Me with the Beatles, Hard Day's Night is the, com the, the first that is completely original, and then there's Beatles for Sale, and there we got some covers still, like Kansas City, for example. And a lot of these covers are from the Cavern days or from the Hamburg days, and obviously they didn't only gig there, they gig all over the UK, but... Um, Mostly, obviously, uh, they're remembered for playing at the Cavern and in Hamburg in your early days. Yeah. Of course, if you listen to the very first episode of this series, I guess, that we're going to continue until... Um, That's not in the contract. <laughs> <laughs> page until, the page until, has gone up. Until, the, until Let It Be's 60th anniversary, so buckle up, it's going to be <laughs> a long ride. <laughs> um... I guess if you listen to our first um, episode about Please Please Me, there is a mass... You're probably not listening to this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One at a time, please. It's going to be very confusing otherwise. Um, if you listen to that one... Is that what I meant? <laughs> <laughs> I meant if they listen to that one, they learn the lesson and they're not listening to this one. <laughs> well... I mean, you never know. You never know what people do with their spare time. For example, look at us doing this. <laughs> no one asked for it. Um, I remember writing a very, very long part about how hard it was for them to actually get to EMI to get a record deal. And uh, in this case, obviously, they were they were they were starting from uh, a relative, um, re relatively good position because obviously, please. That's what she <laughs> God, <laughs> can you tell that we watch The Office like literally every day? Um, it was different. 
and less rushed because obviously they were more respected as artists. Yeah, the songs were actually slower. <laughs> Will you stop it? <laughs> so, please, please me if you remember. Um, it was recorded mostly in one day. And it's I wasn't there, but... <laughs> if you remember your old friends, John, George, Paul and Ringo. Um, well, but the thing is, like, they, they literally had to record it in one day. And it's still, like, it was still the same year. It just, things changed so fast for them. They were um, going on television and they were... St the, the people, critics started praising them. So obviously, um, they were in a very different position. She Loves You had just become their biggest single um, in the UK, and it's still their biggest selling single in the UK. Um, and this time, they knew they were going to sell, uh, like the first time when there were rumors of Brian Epstein buying a lot of the Love Me Do records. <laughs> um, I didn't know that She Loves You was the biggest selling one. I know, right? In the UK, in the UK still to this day makes sense that every time ian from the shakers introduces it that he says this is the song that started it off and i never know what he's talking about <laughs> <laughs> resident musician at the cabin ladies and gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> well i mean he says that he thinks that is one of the best pop songs ever written yeah but i'm sure that he says this is the one that launched everything the thing is, I believe that probably in the UK, many feel that that was the very big first hit rather than Love Me Do, because Love Me Do only peaked at number 17, if, if I remember well. Um, yeah, whereas, obviously, She Loves You became number one. Actually, it's one of the first ones that I can remember hearing as a child, actually. Really? And thinking about what it would say. I think it's very interesting. It's a very interesting song. I think we should actually do some spin-offs about the singles. They're going to be shorter episodes. Huh? Spin-offs works well with the record. Uh, definitely. Um, that was absolutely intended. <laughs> um, because the singles are very interesting as well, I think. Yeah, they are. Uh, especially because in many cases they sold way more than the albums. Um, but it's 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 quite an interesting one with the Beatles because there are no singles. But I believe there are so many songs that could have been singles, and we'll we'll get we'll get to that. Um, I think it was something to do with they didn't want to. Like, I'm sure I've heard Lennon in an interview saying that they didn't want to cheat the public by selling an album around a single. Yeah. Something like that. But maybe also because they didn't want to have like a single and then fillers for stuff like that. I don't know. But I know as well that their contract was for, I believe, like two albums and four singles or maybe something, yeah, like, something that. like that. Every six months or every year. Yeah, still, still. It's pretty amazing the quality that they managed to get out of, you know, even songs that they considered album fillers, you know. I know. Wait, careful. From the Shakers always says. This is a massive plug. <laughs> yes, for the Shakers. The Shakers. <laughs> the Shakers. The Shakers. Yeah. yeah, that's what Kev always says. That you get, but he actually gets really angry that when he hears a song and it was just an album filler. Yeah. And he says, this was just a, you know, that's, that's, that's how everyone now, when we're going to talk about the songs individually, just remember that these 
were never singles and you were, these were all album fillers quote unquote yeah um and obviously as i was saying it's just amazing that obviously they now were in a completely different place uh because they london. it was london <laughs> Stop it! I knew you were gonna say it. You were in London before as well. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, why did I invite you? So <laughs> she says a lot. <laughs> Every day when I wake up in the morning and I see you next to me, I'm like, why did I invite you? <laughs> It's been the same for the past four years. <laughs> But what I mean is that they had. Um, a silver disc for sales of 250,000 records four days before the official release all on pre-orders essentially and uh, in a week they had sold more than half a million copies and with the Beatles became the first LP by British acts to sell more than a million copies a million and one yeah. oh god <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <sighs> Came here for practice. Yeah, <laughs> are you are you here until? <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. I'm really happy that I've got this fact checker right next to me. <laughs> um, but I also want to point out that it was quite, you know, it was not as easy as it is today to uh, access to records. I mean, it wasn't complicated, but. Um, It wasn't like today that you actually had to have it on the palm. Like you could have it for free, you know, <laughs> no, no, no. on the palm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. But what I mean is... On the palm. <laughs> on the palm. <laughs> the palm of your hand. Oh, in the palm of your hand. Ow. <laughs> on the palm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm a foreigner. On the palm of your hand. You see how mean he is? <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't want a British boyfriend. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, what I mean is, we had like a debate earlier about how did... There's no debate. <laughs> <laughs> Because he is a fact checker. He knows it, he knows it all. But <laughs> what I mean is like, obviously there were ways to... Um, you know have records delivered or stuff like that but you have to pay whereas today you can have a lot of records for free which is which makes it way more accessible if you think about it yeah, sad though, isn't it? <laughs> it is sad if you're an artist and obviously i mean the, the thing is like uh, as an artist you can make money out of like uh, uh, other things i'm a big believer in the physical product as many people are now thank god you know there's a lot of young people that Well, vi vinyl uh, is actually like. Downloading is crap, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's actually it's all right if you want to listen to something fast. But it's not the same as. Imagine if you hadn't heard a full album, and you knew what the. In this case, it wasn't a single, but you would have heard something on the radio. Yeah. And then you get the album, and you don't know what the rest of it sounds like. Yeah. And then you put it on for the first time, you know. It's like a discovery. But people don't listen from the radio anymore. Like, I believe that most people, most young people, actually access music through videos on TikTok or Reels. And sometimes it's like a portion of, like, 10 seconds of a sped-up song. However, 
still surprises me just how big radio is, you know, because it's in cars, people's cars. Actually, today on the way. I back don't really from, listen to radio. I, j I, I listen I, to it all the time. I know, but because you, you, you're not able, you, you, you're not able to use Spotify. You don't even know how to use Spotify. <laughs> don't, don't mistake. Don't think you're edgy only because you're absolutely. <laughs> I'm edgy if I don't know how to use it. Because the thing is, like we said before, people would think that it was an act the way I am with technology. You know now from living with no. music, there is no act. One day he asked me if he could put the songs from Spotify on a CD. Which I still don't know the answer to. I know, I, w I wasn't expecting a laugh from you because <laughs> you have laughed so because the punchline doesn't exist for you. <laughs> oh, nice. Anyway. anyway, I assume that people that are, you know, older than me will be thinking, well, Liam is right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What the hell? But, Actually, uh, I heard the new single today on the radio. Really? It's always oh. better. That's the other thing I was going to go back to. It's always better when you hear a song come on the radio. Because it's unexpected. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And um, obviously, going back to uh, the sales of the, of the record, uh, it was really revolutionary. And before we get to the song, something as revolutionary as the songs... It literally revolved around. Oh. Before we get to the songs, let's talk about another revolutionary thing, which was used as well um, by Capital uh, for Meet the Beatles. So thank God they actually <laughs> got, um, got that right. And uh, now Capital will never want to work with me. <laughs> mm. This makes me think of chocolate Capital Records. I don't know why. Oh my goodness. Like Cadbury? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So I'm talking about the cover because it was quite unusual for artists to have a black and white picture as their cover. Most people opted for attention grabbing colorful covers, whereas the Beatles re re they were really set on the idea of recreating the same half shadow atmosphere of the iconic pictures that Astrid Kirka. Oh God, never know how to pronounce it. I'll never know if Kierke. it's Kircher or Kirka. Oh, let's see. Astrid Kircher. Sounds French. Astrid Kircher. Kircher. Okay, <laughs> let me say it again. Most people opted for attention-grabbing, colorful covers, whereas the Beatles were actually set in the idea of recreating the same half-shadow atmosphere of the iconic pictures uh, Astrid Kircher took of them in Hamburg. <laughs> Did I say it right? Yeah. By the way, Kevin of the of the Shakers. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Has actually met Astrid Kircher. Oh my goodness! What did um, he say about um, her? Literally unbelievable story. Gone. He was playing with his then band, which we won't mention, um, <laughs> <laughs> for copyright reasons. <laughs> he was in, a, in Hamburg. And they were in a restaurant, like a little restaurant on the, the main strip. And the lady who was serving or taking the plates away or something from the tables was Astrid. Unbelievable. And they were like, obviously, you know, they thought. 
you know how I am. I wouldn't have recognized her because I can't recognize anyone. Yeah, she didn't recognize oh. me. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, you'll have to ask him about that. What Very did he? What, did he say anything about? Uh, did he say anything to her? I think he must have. You know what Kev's like. He's very confident. He probably did speak to it. But imagine, imagine your first time you go to Cap to Cabin. To uh, <laughs> plug, 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 plug. Your first time you go to Hamburg. And you see Astrid waiting to him. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Things went bad after the video. <laughs> I think she was like that, you know. I don't think she was ever changed by any of it. She really, she, was, she really sounds like she was a very nice person. Oh yeah, she looked after them. She was like their mother, you know. But she at really the same time, I feel like she's a very good them. role model for like... Her family like really looked after them. They fed them and everything. Yeah, but what I mean is like even her personally, I think she was a very good role model and not, not for the Beatles, but what I mean in terms of like women who did creative jobs back then. Obviously, she was, a, she was, I believe, she came from a good family. Yeah. I think so. um, but I really, I really liked, like, how she was. She was just so cool. I think it must have been really cool for the young people at the time. There must have been, like, this little bit of a rebellion that you can imagine that the older people, when German and English people got together after the war, it must have been such a taboo thing. And these young people were like rebelling against it, weren't they? They were saying that we could. To be fair, think about the swing kids during the war. All those German kids who dressed as English people, English men. Yeah, but I mean, even when. That, and, even... and listened to swing. I mean, during the war. As no, but well. what I'm saying is so immediately after the war. Like even when I was a kid in school, this is in the 90s, it was always, like, whether it was purposely done or not, I think it was, but there was always, like, whenever they spoke about the war, it was always leaning towards, like, German people are bad, you know. I mean, and I'm sure that it, I mean, maybe obviously, it was I think for everyone that has studied, especially <laughs> World War II, I mean, the Germans didn't do great things, but it was obviously... It's not the, it's not the average the German person, you know. country, exactly. That's what that's I mean, like, the, but even if it's, like, indirectly, you, as a kid, learning about that, but I believe, get this idea that yeah. German people are, like, nasty or whatever. So you can imagine it but just I, after the war. I believe that, especially, like, since they came from Liverpool, the Beatles, they really found a very similar city in Hamburg... Yeah, because it was were, like a port city, and both international. Were devastated by the exactly. War. So I, I believe but that that might have made things a bit easier for them. I think as it well. was that the people who were born in the forties, they had that common thing where like a bonding thing about they them. were the kids of the war. Yeah, and they didn't want to not like each other. Yeah, makes no. sense. Makes and sense. And it must have been so cool and exciting to be like friends with Germans and vice versa to be a young person in the 60s and to be friends with the you can imagine what parents were saying you know yeah my goodness they probably were frightened to death when all these bands went over to Hamburg but we thought <laughs> it was still like you know yeah I feel like they really 
obviously Brian Epstein really helped in uh, shaping their look, but I believe that Astrid mm. really helped as yeah. well. I was just going to say, we really need to do an episode on Brian Epstein because he's a really interesting guy. Yeah, we said it. We said it eight we months said it ago. Probably last time, we yeah. said it again. <laughs> um, so, talking about the cover picture, um, it seems like a very artistic shot. And it was literally taken on the fly during an hour break that they had between two gigs in Bournemouth. Poor fly. Oh, God. But I think you're going to be saying something interesting. <laughs> Who was this fly? <laughs> <laughs> um, so they, it was literally just taken in an hour, in an hour break um, because they were, they were in Bournemouth where the, uh, they were playing uh, the Gaumont Cinema every night. Gaumont. 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 Okay, I... I oh, Gaumont. Gaumont. <laughs> Gaumont. <laughs> I pronounce it very, very French. Uh, that cinema, every night for almost a week. The photo shoot took place at the Palace Court Hotel on the 22nd of August, the day before She Loves You was released in the UK. So, I mean, it's like... I don't know, I just think of them and something that exciting is about to happen to them. And, and, and obviously that moment specifically is very exciting as well. The photographer, Robert Freeman, who was paid 75 pounds for the shoot. Which was, was ironic considering his name was Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> False advertisement right yep. there, my friend. <laughs> Apparently it's like, it was like three times the EMI fee that, which is quite interesting if you, if you consider that the Beatles weren't that big, I mean. I don't know, I don't just, know, they just, there's just no, felt there's no it. Describe, there's no like explaining that level of magic yeah. in the universe. And he was shown Astrid's pictures and he found a way to recreate the same atmosphere in the hotel. For George Harrison, that was the moment the Beatles started having more creative freedom and control around their albums. And although uh, the shot looks incredibly artistic, because it does, uh, it really didn't take long to achieve the result. Uh, McCartney said it was probably in a corridor, whereas Freeman remembers taking the pictures in the dining room of the hotel. The photographer had set four chairs and played with natural light coming from a window at the bottom of the room and the uh, relative darkness of the room itself. To make sure the picture would fit in a square format, he had Ringo sit in the bottom right corner, choosing him, I guess, because he was the last one to join the band so it was the one that was like lower com compared to the others in the picture um i just love to think that there were people in this hotel just minding their own business probably on holiday whilst in that probably room like toffs like yeah. what is this footage shoot <laughs> i don't think i don't know where was it the palace Palace Court Hotel. This is a palace court, don't you know? <laughs> Scrap it, Liverpoolian. <laughs> Absolutely, that's what they would have been thinking. Can you keep that accent for the rest of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know they cancelled afternoon tea for that scrappy little man? <laughs> <laughs> Just, I don't know, I just like, like to think that, you know, things were just happening, like, 
normally happening while history was being made. I just, just, I just love the thought of that. You know. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, like life was going on. Just like, even the people that worked in the hotel. Yeah. They were probably annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much like you're playing it as if it was like a big thing. I believe it probably wasn't. You know. It was like literally improvised. Maybe it was like no, exactly. in, in the afternoon, like exactly. no one was so, in the dining room. And so they were like, oh, okay, let's do it here. You know, no, but they, you can imagine like hotel porters and stuff knocking about. Yeah. Like they're probably just like looking at them. Like, probably been what the hell is going like on here? Five in the morning. Yeah. Know, dealing with customer complaints all the time. And then there's <laughs> like this random band. I mean, a photo shoot, you're like, you know, you. Where would you do? I would be like, why would why would you do it here? I hate this place. (laughs) (laughs) Freeman worked with the Beatles again for Beatles for Sale and helped them with the idea for the semaphore spelling and help, and the stretched image on the rubber sole cover. And it must have been hard for him to work with the Beatles in a way, since rumor has it that John was having an affair with his wife. Oh, I haven't, but. It sounded. It's. Uh, it's on in. Uh, it's in Cynthia's book. It's in oh, Cynthia's autobiography. I really want the audio. Audio. Um. The <laughs> audio biography of that because I know there is. One. Because you can't read. <laughs> because I'm <laughs> terrible at reading. <laughs> and I'd rather have someone speak to me like I'm a child. <laughs> <laughs> they explain this to me like I'm five. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I really I hope want. Tom to. listens to this. <laughs> From the shakers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, people are gonna hate us. No one's gonna listen to this. If you got to this point, please leave us a comment <laughs> and tell us. Shut up. <laughs> okay, but back to with the Beatles. The band really loved how the picture turned out, and wanted it to be the only thing present on the cover of the album, but a EMI uh, said absolutely not. It was too risky for a band who wasn't famous enough to like, you know, just have the picture without the name or anything. Interestingly enough though, this was still quite the same thought when uh, Kosh worked on Abbey Road. Yes, we have to mention Kosh. Oh yes, yes, of course, of course. Uh, if you haven't listened to my episode with Kosh, who is uh, the designer and um, art director of so many great covers in music history and rock and roll history. He designed the Abbey Road cover. He worked at Apple Records. He worked with The Who, The Rolling Stones, The Too many Eagles. to even mention. Too, too many. It's incredible. It's incredible. And, and it, also, he's just the nicest person yeah, ever. <laughs> we spoke to him a couple of times together. Yes. With, um, with Jenny. Jenny. Yeah. I'm just really genuine lovely people absolutely absolutely and uh, yeah I, i've been lucky enough to interview him and he he told us about working on abbey road and uh, and that essentially it was actually crazy even at that time it was so bold to decide to you know just release a record without the name of the band on, on it but but that time when they released Abbey Road it was like if you didn't know who the Beatles were like you'd be living, living under a rock you know yeah. and um, <clears throat> but at the beginning you know uh, people were like oh no 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 but actually interestingly enough I heard that uh, I read that um, Decca actually made that choice for the Rolling Stones debut album so I think they wanted to be which one is that? I don't know. um 
I think it was self-titled. Um, and so they didn't have their names there. But I might be wrong. I'm not the biggest Rolling Stone expert. So if anyone wants to contradict me, I'm really, really happy to be. <laughs> yes. And the sleeve notes were again typed by the group's press officer, Tony Barrow, that referred to the group as the fabulous foursome. And I believe for the very first time before the media picked up uh, on the nickname and made the Beatles the Fab Four. And uh, with the Beatles was recorded in seven days, non-consecutive days, obviously, as we were saying before, between the 18th of July and uh, October 1963 in Abbey Road, uh, obviously Studio 2. And interestingly enough, all of their songs up until I Wanna Hold Your Hand were all recorded on a two-track machine instead of a four-track machine. The engineer was Norman Smith. So, let's talk about the songs. You ready? We're like <laughs> 40 minutes in. Let's talk about the songs. First song is a Lennon-McCartney original, and it's an amazing way to open an album. It won't be long. Recorded on the 30th of July in two sessions with 10 takes in the morning, interrupted by the rehearsal for the BBC Saturday Club and seven takes in the afternoon with five additional partial takes. The song... So, in an ironic twist of fate, it was quite long. It took, to... it took, it took long, yeah. <laughs> So the song we, that we know is takes 17 and 21 mixed together. So it will be long. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, such a powerful start. Yeah. And um, it's like, I think obviously they wanted to do something like I saw her standing there um, for Please Please Me. It's just so powerful. Like imagine you just, you never heard it. You just put it on the, on the record player. And oh my God. I always think that with these things, with bands like the Beatles and songs like that, when when you go into the into the uh, control office of the is that what they call it? Control room. Control room of the studio. Control office. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's it's George Martin. It sounds like it would be more of an office. Yeah, it? fair enough. But there's no way that you wouldn't know that that was going to be successful. Oh, yeah. It's impossible for that not to be it's successful. It's incredible. And um, it was it was written... With a pen, I think. Uh, <laughs> possibly on paper. <laughs> I'm not but, sure of these facts. <laughs> with words. <laughs> it was written like, please, please me, because... They, especially John Lennon, obviously, he really loved um, wordplay. Uh, and pay, it, it, pay, it pays off here because obviously it, it plays with be long and belong. And uh, it's I constant. I never yeah. thought of that as well. I never thought of it, but he On did it, like that. He, he, he really liked, liked it. Yeah, stuff. yeah, exactly. Like, please, please me because yeah. they mean two different things. It's just, it's just so clever. So yeah. clever that no, no, Neither one of us yeah, caught it. In all these years, I've Good never job, even, John. <laughs> now I won't be able to hear it any other way. Yeah, exactly. It never, never struck me that at all. I bet he's turning in his grave now. Come <laughs> on, John. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Next up is All I Gotta Do. 
which I feel has a very similar vibe to Anna from the previous album. I don't know. Mm. I always kind of associate the two. Again, if you listen to some of his later interviews, he always says that he was rewriting things that he liked. But yeah. you would never know unless he mentioned it, you know. I mean, he also, with this, was trying to be very Smokey Robinson. Yeah. Because um, I'll show you the song that he based it on, which is uh, Smokey Robinson, who wrote for the Miracles, You Can Depend On Me. Oh, John. Just that chord at the Just beginning. That starting chord. I mean, if it only goes as far as that opening chord. But really, that but chord is that just is like, yeah. Oh, sneaky. Never heard that before. Yeah, I mean, that chord is just—it's it, just so interesting. I'd love to know what Smokey Robinson thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially when he first heard it on the radio. Ah, royalties. Wait. <laughs> the opening chord. He thought, oh, some royalties today. <laughs> Christmas is gonna be good, and then John Lennon <laughs> starts singing. Wherever, <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, what chord is that? Is it's, it an A? A? I only know how to play it. I don't know how to <laughs> explain it. I'm a very Neanderthal musician. <laughs> I learned by visual. <laughs> so I was at a gig actually not that long ago. The other week in Blackfield, the one we did in not Blackfield, Lytham. Can't say Blackfield to Lytham or Lytham to Blackfield because they'll hate. Yeah. Um, and the guy was telling me that I was doing a wrong chord in a song and he tried to tell me what the chord was. I've heard the name of the chord. Rings a bell. I couldn't um, put the chord to the. The name to the actual physical you see that's the reason why i hate you because you're such a good musician and yet you've got absolutely zero music theory <laughs> <laughs> on your side <laughs> i studied music theory and i'm sh less <laughs> accomplished <laughs> <And> poopy <laughs> oh. that's why you should never stay in school kids <laughs> <laughs> that's the message in it that you give <laughs> oh god i hope kids are not listening to this <laughs> anyway isn't that great that he actually you know that's that was his inspiration and he says it like he says that was me trying to be Smokey robinson you know and um it is very interesting musically for that chord and old stops um, and that's probably why they've never done it live because, believe it or not, it was recorded on the on September the 11th in 15 takes, and the last one was an overdub, and eight of the takes were all false starts. With that chord, as well. Yeah. It's hard though, isn't it? Isn't it? So they never played uh, "It Won't Belong" and "All I Gotta Do" live, and I believe right. it must be for the stops. Because it's very complicated. Especially when there's an audience screaming. Exactly. Above and you mean the monitors like don't do anything really. But I don't think there's you hardly ever hear them. There's one recording just surfaced recently, this is off the uh, topic of the album that we're talking about, but of them doing Love Me Do Live. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard a live version of that before that. And we always assumed it was because they had trouble with the harmonica because 
when we played it live, we had trouble with the harmonicas. Oh, it's that low note is yeah. always uh, a nightmare. Yeah. Oh, do you want to do? Um, <laughs> you uh, you actually through Tom found a harmonica that can do that yeah. note. It's called a swan. Swan, yeah, swan. So if you're struggling to now. hit that note, uh, special, oh special oh, oh wow! So if you're struggling to hit that note in the harmonica solo, time, so, this is be a so yeah, this not a very good advertisement for Swan. With auto tune and editing, this will sound great. Go on. Alright, so. Oh. <laughs> It's that last note. Yeah. On my other chromatic, which I won't mention the name because it's cruel. Uh, <laughs> it's well known, Meg. <laughs> it, was, it just won't work. This one is a budget harmonica and it's just very good. So, yeah, if you're struggling to get that note in Love Me Do. Oh. No, not that. <laughs> I can't remember. It's, anyway, you uh, heard it before. <laughs> <laughs> Don't time, be greedy. One performance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you're struggling with that one, we got you covered. <laughs> You've heard it here, the cat's whisker. <laughs> it's a swan chromatic in C. Okay, very good. Thank you very much for that. Now, I'll tell you a song that I can't believe it was never a single. I mean, it kind of was, and I'll explain in a second. All My Loving. I can't believe All My Loving was never a single. Just loads it. So, it was a single in um, Argentina, Sweden, Norway, and Japan. And it was also the first track of some EPs in Australia, France, Denmark, Japan, New Zealand, Sweden, Sweden, and possibly some that were released in the United Kingdom, but never a single in the UK. And I think that's a shame because I mean all my loving has all the potential to be a single yeah. not that I mean the, the Beatles needs any more notoriety but bloody hell yeah I'm never that keen on that one. <gasps> oh, I like the bass line oh my god the I like I like it bass. I just never like no I, I think it's absolutely incredible have you heard the version where it counts in on the hi-hat I I tried to find that one i've got that on vinyl in okay. fact it's on one of those vinyls we have great because i couldn't find it on spotify i think i've heard i think i've heard it actually the counts are quite tricky on that one yeah we do like an intro thing on although <laughs> they you sometimes get wrong <laughs> although that's also the song that they chose to start the ed sullivan show with it was written mostly by Paul McCartney, who recounted this was the first song that he had written with the words first, because he was on the tour bus and he didn't have his guitar available. And he wrote it as if it was a poem. How do you write your songs? Usually with a pen. Uh, <laughs> oh my again. God. <laughs> not, not much, uh, not, you know, dissimilar to the Beatles. Wow. That's only one of many things we've got in common with the Beatles. <laughs> the use of pen. <laughs> no, usually it's too cliche to talk about songwriting because everybody says the same thing. But the best ones you do come dead easy. 
And if you actually try to do it, it's very hard. It just happens, you know, it just comes Can you through. write the music first or the words first? I've always been... Some people write the words first. I've always been music first. In fact, what I, what I read is that Paul said that this was the first one where he wrote the words first, but it didn't really happen that many times in general. Mm. Um, and even if it sounds crazy to even think that McCartney up until that moment was, I guess, a bit behind. I mean, he looked behind, I guess, from like the outside in terms of hit writing. Many think that this is the real moment where like he, he blossomed, you know, musically, showing that he was as talented as John in terms of writing a hit. I never oh. thought about that. Who yeah, because first? it's impossible for me to think like that Lennon, like from the outside, maybe up until that point, people were like kind of just focusing on him. And then Paul came along and like had to show everyone that he was actually as worthy. But didn't they write John. She Loves You together? Yeah, they did. They did. But I guess since. I don't know, I think John always acted more as a frontman. Well, they always used to say... I don't know, though, in yeah. The, in the interviews, Paul always used to say, John is, in fact, the leader of the group. <laughs> you know, he would <laughs> always say that. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. But these are very, very early days, you have to consider, of in their fact, fame. Uh, I'm sure All My Loving is what John said he wished he wrote in a later Absolutely, interview. yeah, yeah, yeah. He said that m multiple times, and I believe he said it even in his last interview that was yeah. the one with Playboy. And when asked 1980. why, he, he said, because it's a damn good tune, you know. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll tell you all about it. So first of all, let's talk about uh, when Paul wrote it. It happened when the Beatles were on tour with Roy Orbison in the spring 1963. And he remembers it being a gig at a venue of the Moss Empire Circuit, which is a chain of venues all across the UK. The London Palladium or the Liverpool Empire, for example, are part of it. And in the backstage, he found a piano and he started working on All My Loving There, inspired by country tunes. Uh, it was recorded on the 30th of July, when they also worked on Please Mr. Postman, It Won't Be Long, Money, Till That Was You and Roll Over Beethoven. It took them 13 takes, and the one that we hear is take 11, whereas the remaining ones were mostly overdubbed takes. John Lennon always loved this song, as you said, and it's interesting to know that the rhythm guitar part, which honestly always looks like it's a nightmare to play, is it a you play this part, although you're a lead Particular, guitar. Particularly today, this was difficult when I was playing it. <laughs> I think we started a little bit I know we started a little bit too fast. No. It is so fast though. My instinct is to think it's the drummer's fault. However, <laughs> technically I start this song because I do the <laughs> intro. <laughs> the... <laughs> so it's probably my fault. Oh my god. But that Liam. rhythm pattern is hard at the best of times, but when it's at the fast of times, <laughs> it's just too much. It you is have to get the tempo fast. right because it's it's got accents. I can't really do the accents that very well, but it's got accents on the changes of chords and that gives you like a signal to for the rhythm, you know? Yeah. And if it's going too fast, you can't get the accents in there. It, it looks very hard. Um, and um, apparently, uh, the, this, these fast uh, triplets um, on the rhythm guitar are supposed to emulate the sound of a car's wheels on the motorway because of the nature of the song 
which is like two people that are away from each other about like a journey you know and uh, that's what John never heard that one. yeah great. that's that's what they said about the song and, and they spent a lot of time with wheels going didn't they <laughs> yeah I, I knew you were gonna <laughs> like this detail I, I knew you were gonna like this yeah I never heard that one yeah. That's what my brakes sound like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, you know, Paul's bass is just amazing, and George's country style solo. I mean, these two need to be appreciated as well. I think they're just incredible. Track number four is George Harrison's first published song, "Don't Bother Me." Recorded between September 11 and 12, he considered it a throwaway song, but I honestly like it. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Wrote it while he was poorly, didn't he? No. Yes, exactly. Um, he, he wrote it while he was um, sick in bed in 1963, in the summer, in Bournemouth. So I assume it might also be that same period where they took the picture, possibly. Isn't it weird how, like... Usually being sick in bed is a, is a bad thing, but I'd love to be sick in bed in 1963 in Bournemouth. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> it's so aggressive and, and unusual. I just, I just like it. You know, John and Paul knew that George could write, but I feel like since they were older and had been doing it together for a while, they were hesitant to let George in their songwriting duo. In fact, actually, Paul McCartney remembers a conversation with John Lennon while they were walking past Walton Church. And they were considering making the writing duo a trio, but then decided things should remain the way they were. I also wonder what that would have been like. Uh, obviously, I know that George might have had like some input in the songs, although I feel like John and Paul were such a... In, like closed group yeah. in a way yeah. but because they worked so well and obviously you can't blame them because they gave us some of the best the music thing is <laughs> if you was if you were george and ringo especially in the early days you're not going to complain about the next hit you know well bill harry as well he he pushed george a lot into into writing and uh I feel like George really felt like if John and Paul can do it, I can do it as well. Because now we, we I mean, we consider John and Paul like, I mean, they are like gods. But for George at that time, they were peers, oh, you know? Yeah. Obviously, and he felt like, okay, I'm just gonna do this exercise and see what I can I can do. And he wrote, don't bother me. The interesting thing about that is that you wouldn't think, oh, that's a George song. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a Paul song. Oh, that's a Absolutely. John song. It's a Beatles song. It really is a, a thing of yeah. a, like a thing together. It sounds like a collective writing, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Sure. That that that's so true. And the sound though is very unique and very Latin sounding. I love the intro on the guitar. Oh, it's so good. The fact that the song featured the guitar solo was a really a challenge for George. Like he said, it was very hard because in Chains and uh, do you know? Do you want to know a secret? There was no um, guitar solo, and so for him it was like I'm both the lead guitar and the lead singer. Mm. So that was 
kind of a challenge for him, like for the first time, uh, recording-wise. Um, but all the group gave its contribution with um, the percussions. Ringo, obviously, is playing the drums, and a loose-skinned Arabian bongo that made Tony Barrow say in the sleeve notes, don't ask me where you picked that up. Paul McCartney is playing the woodblock, and John Lennon is playing the tambourine. Now, as for the next song, I've got a confession to make. I never really liked it. Which one? Little Child. I don't mind Little Child. I don't know. It's got a lot of harmonica work, which is good. Yes, you're gonna like some facts about that. You know, it's very hard. If you're like a hardcore fan, it's hard to admit that there are some songs that you don't like. I, know, I can admit some that, some that I don't No, like. exactly. But they all come from the, the light era, really. I know, but sometimes it's like, oh, you know, you feel like a bit judged, but you know, there, are, feel, so, would, there I, are so many. You shouldn't feel judged for not liking Yellow Submarine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind Yellow Submarine. Oh, Octopus's Garden, you know. I love Octopus's Garden. I like kids' songs. And oh my god! In fact, I'm sure that was the purpose because they were just so genius marketing. <laughs> we're all targeting songs, Ringo songs, and in fact, this song was supposed to go to Ringo. But <laughs> 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 then, <laughs> then it didn't. It didn't because obviously Ringo sang uh, "I Want to Be Your Man" in this in this album. They refer to it as a work song, probably considered it a filler track. Or, I, I don't know, maybe it's the fact that I don't like it and that's why I interpret it I like that it. way. Um, is there anyone whose favourite song is Little Child? Please let me know. It's got some great moments in Little Child. I know. It's the harmony so on there, I'm so sad and lonely. You know? That's good. No, it's not like, I mean, it's not like a song that I say I don't like it. Like, I don't like songs yeah, by, I, mean, I don't know, like Drake. Sorry if you like Drake. I just don't get it. I couldn't it's even just, tell you a single I note I of a Drake. I probably wouldn't be able sound to. Because I'm but, not going to call it a song. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. But what I mean is, like, obviously, when I say I'm not keen on a song by the Beatles, it's still, like, know. you know, up there anyway. It was written as a tribute to uh, Whistle in My Love by Elton Hayes, which uh, Paul must have known from the Disney film The Story of Robin Hood. It took them 18 takes and two days, September 11 and 12, to complete the song. And even if in most early recordings the piano was played by George Martin, who we hear on the record is Paul McCartney. The mixing process here is quite interesting when it comes to the harmonica, played by John Lennon. Uh, and I invite you to try and notice this next time that you listen to the song. The harmonica pans from left to right for the solo and then pans from right to left after the solo. That's some work in those days, isn't it? I know, isn't that cool? Yeah, that's George Martin, isn't it? Yeah, absolute genius, honestly. The next song is uh, the first cover of the album and uh, it was again inspired by a film. We're talking about a song called Till There Was You, a beautiful song that was in fact written by Meredith Wilson who was a man, actually. I was <laughs> I, gonna say. I thought he was a woman at first. I was like, oh my god, that's so cool. And then I clicked on it and, it, and a bloke came up. <laughs> and it was featured in a 1957 musical and then 1962 film, The Music Man. 
And funnily enough, Wilson's widow uh, said that they received more royalties from the Beatles cover of the song rather than the original song made for the play. <laughs> Not surprised that. That was his widow's name. Oh. Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Jack Wilson. <laughs> Truth is, Paul knew it uh, thanks, not not the widow, <laughs> but the song, <laughs> knew it thanks to uh, his cousin, Elizabeth, who loved Peggy Lee. And Peggy Lee did a version of Till There Was You in 1958, and that's how uh, Paul knows it. Um, it is honestly a very sweet song uh, from the late night cabaret background, and I believe it shows how versatile the group was. I used to listen to that over and over again. Oh, I love that song. In my car. I mean, honestly, like, they used to, they, they went from, like, smash hits, rock and roll, like, very, like, rough rock and roll, and then, Till There Was You. Oh, thanks to the hours that they had to play in Hamburg. Yeah, definitely. so many things. Yeah, exactly. And, like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't say that, but... Obviously, it went down super well in Hamburg and at the Cavern, but also at the Royal Variety performance, which happened a few weeks before the release of the album. And you always say that you can tell that Paul is nervous. I never used to be able to. When I first got into wanting to be in a band and all that, I used to watch performances of the Beatles. I used to think, my God, everything is perfect. Their singing is absolutely perfect. But when I listen to it now, with what I would personally claim to be educated ear, <laughs> <laughs> I can hear it now, you know, yeah. the little nervous, nervous bits, the little mistakes are in there. It's quite fast, I believe, in the, in that, that performance. It's yeah. a bit faster than... Faster than the record, yeah. But because well, that's what happens sometimes when you're, you know, yeah. nervous as well, I guess, you know. That's my excuse, isn't it? So, um, the song was a pretty solid piece of the repertoire, so much so that it was actually contained in their Decca tapes as well, the ones that got rejected. <laughs> and uh, that's probably also the reason why Till That Was You was recorded on the first session for With The Beatles on the, the 18th of July. They did three takes and then an additional one on the 30th. A private pressing of the song featuring Hello Little Girl as well went on auction in 2016 and guess, guess how much, how much, like, I mean, it started from 10 grand, the auction. What year was it? 2016. Private pressing or um, Till There Was You and Hello Little Girl. 250 million. <laughs> Fuck it out. <laughs> 77,000. Oh, that's not that much, is it? <laughs> For a Beatles thing. Right, it's Christmas soon. <laughs> <laughs> On that same 30th of July, and I don't know about you, but I just love the idea when I listen to these songs to think that they were, like, recorded on the same day. I just like to think that all these, like, recordings that obviously in my head are, like, separate, they were, like, recorded on the same day, like, when they had, you know that day that maybe they you know ate that thing and you know done that other thing yeah. and talked about you know I, d I don't know i just i just love to think that i see the other thing with the beatles is so much for everybody like yeah. there's so much content we would call it today yeah um well, to get your teeth into yeah like for me it's because everything is interesting well, my favorite period is the very early stuff and 
up to 1964 is my favourite period. Because it's when it when they were a band band, you know, proper band, when they were touring up and down the country. Touring band, yeah. In vans, going to service stations. And, well, not that there was many service stations, there weren't that many motorways, but transport cafes and things like that. Yeah. Playing in similar venues to what we do now, with very minimal equipment. Fascinates me is thinking about what PAs were there, because they very rarely had their own PA. It was house PA systems in those days. Mm-hmm. Entertainment, live entertainment was more popular, obviously. So venues would yeah provide put money into yeah. it. Um, just that's the period that fascinates me. But there's all sorts for everybody, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they're so interesting, and I just love that we've got like records of what they did every day, and yeah, it's because they were famous and you know fascinating from the start, essentially. Yeah. Which is just great. And 1963 is the best year because I inv- I would like push anybody to look into the itinerary that they had in. Oh my god, it's absolutely it's crazy! Wild. You can find it in many books, but if you want to find it online as well, it's um, yeah. on Beatles Bible. It's just amazing. I don't know if I got this wrong, but I'm sure they did 400 or something performances in that year. 400 live. Something Crazy. like that, live performances. So it's obviously there's more, more performances than, than days in a year. Yeah, I know they only used to like twenty minutes, but the point is. Yeah, but think about this: they also wrote songs. <laughs> yeah, wrote, recorded, they wrote songs radio and recorded songs. TV interviews. Just I don't know, just different and world. The next song on the album was recorded on that same day of Tilda was you on the thirtieth of July, the second. Um, you know, session for a Tilda with you. Um, they recorded the following track on the album, which is another cover and one of their favorite songs to perform live, Please Mr. Postman. It is a joint effort of writers Holland, Bateman, Garrett, Dobbins, and Gorman, and a 1961 hit for the Motown group, The Marvelettes. Which is an excellent name for a group, by the way. Yeah. It, but the song, I mean, it's just so iconic. And I, I dare to say that most people know this version rather than the original. And many say that even if the Beatles didn't know it then, this is the song that really introduced the British public to Motown. Mm. I don't know. It, maybe it's because, obviously, we were born later. And so we kind of absorb everything as a whole. Yeah, we don't really have the, the perception the... of like how things kind of developed. But... Yeah. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. And now, if you will, it's time to flip the record. And it's not like a <laughs> innuendo. <laughs> In your end. <laughs> <laughs> We're flipping the record. And the first song on the B side is as powerful as the first one on the A side. Roll over Beethoven. If the Beatles were big fans of Motown, they certainly were big fans of Chuck Berry too. Probably the artist they covered the most. This song opened the Beatles' second album in America, and it really is an incredible rendition um, where George is taking the vocal lead. And it was a must of their live performances, so much so that they nailed it in only five takes on the 30th of July. And in an additional one, they just added the final chord. But back to our Lennon McCartney original, let's talk about. Hold me tight because so many people have a lot of 
opinions. Really? Yes. What do you think about Hold Me Tight? I love it. And it's an absolute nightmare to play on a guitar. <laughs> I love that one. I always loved it. Paul and John don't like it at all. Well, they have higher standards, of course. <laughs> I believe that they didn't really care for this song. They had actually tried to record it, if you remember, for Please Please Me. But there was no time, and it was taking too many takes. Um, Not surprised, just tried playing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what I really hate about this is that all 13 takes of them trying to play it for Please Please Me have been destroyed. So, we don't have those takes, unfortunately. Destroyed by the Rolling Stone. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is definitely an early song. Written in Paul McCartney's house in Fortland Road here in Liverpool. Uh, they were trying to write a single, but the song never convinced them fully. Apparently, George Martin decided to record it in very speed mode, which means he changed the frame rate of the recording that ended up changing the song's key from E to F. That's why it's a pain to play. Perhaps that's why some people say that Paul's vocal is out of tune. They, they, it, like, the, the, the voice sounds out of tune. Do you reckon it sounds out of tune? tune, But I think maybe when trying to sing it, it will be an unnatural reach if it's sped up a little bit. Yeah. There was a lot of their songs like that where you think, why? Like, are they superhuman or what's going on? (laughs) Then you find out that it was like sped up or whatever. Yeah. Oh, that's how they did it. Swines. Like the guitar solo on Hard Day's Night. For years, I thought, God, that's fast. But it turns out that they actually played it. In a different key. No, no, they they did all the the song in a normal rate, and then they slowed the song down to do the solo to record the solo yeah. of the guitar, and then sped it back up. Don't worry, Hard Day's Night is our next album. <laughs> I'm gonna have a lot to say about sneaky that. Sneaky George Harris and and Sneaky George Martin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna have a lot to say about that one because it's all original song. But back to an artist that we mentioned already, um, Smokey Robinson. The next song is "You Really Got a Hold on Me," originally called "You've Really Got a Hold on Me." So with the "you've" at the beginning. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> Oh my god. And it was performed by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. A hit in the US in 1962, but not in the UK. The Beatles, though, were lucky enough to have access to many copies of new records from America thanks to Brian Epstein's policy at his record shop, NEMS. Uh, In fact, he always used to buy at least one copy of everything. And usually Liverpool, anyway, was the first port of choice for deliveries from the US, I believe. So um, they always came through here anyway. Love that. It's such a beautiful song, isn't it? You always do it uh, with your band. I love doing the under harmony that George just. George's harmonies are always so interesting, aren't they? Should try a little bit of a thing to demonstrate the harmonies. If we've got anything left. I'm just going to delete them. I don't like you, but I love you. The Beatles knew this song very well, and uh, it was the first song they recorded for the album, if you can believe it, on July the 18th. It took them less than tech. It it took them less than take. It took them less than ten takes to perfect it. Unlike that bit of the podcast. (laughs) 
And most of the overdubs were of the word baby and George Martin's piano. And uh, George Martin contributed that to wasn't the. That was in the song. They never said George Martin's piano. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> and George Martin contributed to the next song on the album as well, I Want to Be Your Man. It gave uh, three pounds and four pence, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being the what fact waste. checker. What a waste <laughs> of talent. <laughs> Martin played the iconic Harmon organ that really gives a special touch to the song. And it if was you've... arrested for the Oh my god, I knew you were going to say it. Oh my god. <laughs> It's a fun podcast when I'm on this show. <laughs> it's a family-friendly podcast. And if you follow me on Instagram... She will have you arrested. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, If you follow me on Instagram, you'll follow her, she doesn't know. know where she's going. <laughs> oh, my God. Will you stop? Oh, my God. Please send help. <laughs> Not the, the record. I already have that one. <laughs> If you follow me on Instagram, which you should, you should be already. But if you don't, follow me. I'm the Cat's Whisker podcast. I will do it immediately after this. Uh, I already explained the story behind I Want to Be Your Man, but it's just so good. It was a tune that Paul had in his head for quite a while and wanted to write as a Ringo's vocal contribution to the album. Funnily enough, this also became the first top 10 single for the Rolling Stones when the Beatles offered it to them. At the time, the Stones weren't writing their own songs yet, and uh, so when they, they didn't have a pen. <laughs> god! Oh my god! You know it's love. <laughs> you know it's love when I write a like when I write with a pen. <laughs> <laughs> when I laugh to this joke, even if it's not funny, it is and funny. you already told this joke a thousand times. You so laughed. <laughs> so what happened? The Rolling Stones caught John and Paul walking in the street one day. With a net. <laughs> <laughs> they stopped their taxi and uh, let them in. Once they were together, they instantly asked them, got any songs? And well, of course, they wanted to help, but not too much. So they thought we could give them Ringo's song. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love that. How, how kind. Like, Poor Ringo. Ringo. Yeah, I've got a song. That's not me. <laughs> And they finished the song in front of the Stones a few nights a few nights later, and this inspired Jagger and Richards to write their own songs. And um, I mean, not bad for a throwaway song. And honestly, just Ringo's voice in this song is just oh, so Ringo's rock and roll. Oh, my God, much better than Mick Jagger's version. <laughs> so I remember when I posted the video on Instagram. And uh, then I think I don't remember if I put it in the caption or I, you know, put a poll in my stories asking people which one do you prefer and people like everyone said that they preferred the Beatles version it's just amazing Ringo's and for a, uh, Ringo's an underrated voice for me absolutely absolutely his version of boys my god oh wow it's on fire such a rock and roll voice it's yeah. so like it's similar to John's rough. in a way it's got I, like I, um, I was about to say that yes the raucousness yes maybe not as many like you can't do as many different keys but yeah but i think this really showcases um his his talent yeah he's he's very good and um interestingly enough um here's a little tidbit this is the oldest song they performed at their last concert in 1966 
because most of the songs were from like you oh, know all yeah, their yeah. latest albums and they performed this i believe because it was like you know they always wanted to give ringo some songs to sing live of course he had all the songs you know naturally and um voice and uh, other songs but this is the last one I, I mean this is the oldest one that they performed uh live i love his version of boys yeah it's it's great I really mean, go it really goes for it yeah absolutely i just love it so good and next up is um devil in a heart not many know that this is in fact a cover song of quite an obscure American group. <laughs> I couldn't remember if it was a cover or. A... It is a group. Uh, it, 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 is, it is a group. It is a group. It is a, a cover, cover. <laughs> by a group called the Donnies. And um, which makes socks now. <laughs> <laughs> now the Beatles knew them because of the policy that we were talking about uh, that Brian Epstein had at NEMS. Um, this was a bit different though because Smokey Robinson's song was a hit in the US but not in the UK whereas this song wasn't a hit like in the US and obviously it wasn't a hit in the UK either this is another point to make about old music and old and that period of time whenever I hear like something like you really got a hold of me wasn't a hit but then the competition was so fierce absolutely that's why you know Imagine living in a time when... I mean, I believe You Really Got A Hold Of Me, though, was quite high in the charts. I don't yeah, remember if it reached number like, one, but... Imagine how Devil in her heart, scary and I believe that was. Devil In Her Heart wasn't even in the top ten or anything. In, I mean, imagine in, how scary it was in those days. You write a song like yeah. You Really Got A Hold Of Me and oh my it God, doesn't it, make number it one. It would have <laughs> made me so stressed out. Because I would know, like, oh my god, I'm writing this great song, but I know that a lot of other people are writing great songs at the same time. What time? Yeah. What time? Now, the following one is quite interesting because that's the tune that put the Beatles on map, on the map for many critics. I'm talking about not a second time. And you, you just said it twice. And you, you know what? I'm not really fun of oh, this one on. either. Come on. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> Unfollow. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's good. It's good. It's just not one of my favorites. It always kind of amused me um, that John um, says that um, the critics found things in his songs that he never intentionally put. And that's what happened uh, when William Mann from the Times wrote an essay about Lennon McCartney in December 1963, which is incredible. It was an essay about their songwriting in 1963. And I mean, it's, it's like, you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen soon. This is only the beginning. You know what I mean? It's a magical story. I'll read you what William Mann said about not a second time. I mean, about with the Beatles, but then it speaks about, he talks about not a second time. Harmonic interest is typical of their quicker songs too. And one gets the impression that they think simultaneously of harmony and melody. So firmly are the major tonic sevenths and nines built into their tunes and the flat submediant key switches so natural and the alien ca cadence at the end of not a second time. Can you imagine them reading that and thinking, what is this guy talking about? So, please, 
classical musicians out there, try not to kill me while I try to find the words to explain this for all of us mortals, because I was like, well... To be fair, I kind of remember some of this from when I was studying bass, because my... Um, because I think it's very useful for imp improvisation. The Aeolian mode is a scale of notes, and uh, when it comes to chords, it's mostly minor key bass music. Other songs they use the Aeolian mode are All Along the Watchtower by Bob Dylan, Losing My Religion. What? All Along the Watchtower. By Bob Dylan? Yeah, it's originally by him. Jimi Hendrix uh -huh. did a cover. You know that. Um, Jimmy, you lie. Then Losing My Religion, uh, In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins, Shine On Your Crazy Diamond by Pink Floyd and Californication by Red Hot Chili Peppers. So these songs all use the Aeolian mode. I think really what strikes me and I think that's what was really uh, interesting for critics at the time and it still is I believe, is that sometimes the song goes where you don't think it's gonna go, if you get me. Yeah, there weren't, there that's, weren't that. that's, I think, what all this is about. Because that's the thing about early Beatles stuff. It wasn't rock and roll standard. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't anything else. It was the Beatles. Like, it there literally was, was nothing like else. this new thing. You know? It's like a genre. Yeah. Just. And as I said before, like it didn't matter. It clearly had an impact. If yeah. you listen to early like reviews like that, before it was this thing that it is now, and yeah. it was having that kind of impact, it, there was something there, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a fascinating thing. The Beatles were flattered, but had absolutely no idea what that guy <laughs> meant. That's even better, isn't it? You know, that yeah. you're doing all those things that... And you don't... A like a trained don't. classical... It's, it's, it's effortless. I always want someone like that to listen to my songs and review them, you know. Ooh. <laughs> See if this guy's still alive. <laughs> it was amazing how little talent <laughs> <laughs> that went into the early audience cadences of this <laughs> nondescript song <laughs> and uh, this is the only song where uh, George is not playing um, yeah he's not because the guitar is played by John George is not playing at all in uh, not a second time and uh, it's George Martin playing the piano oh, it's a piano break. he probably knew what the alien mode was like, I feel like oh, George Martin, George Martin knew. Martin <laughs> he probably, you know, it's like pointless to actually, like, you know, say it in the moment, but he probably knew, he understood the, the <laughs> critics more oh, yeah. than they did. <laughs> yeah. And now let's talk about the closing track of the album. Probably the hardest to record, Money. Because to record Money, you have to, if, you, if you've got coins, you have to, like, bang them on the floor. <laughs> Paper, you have to sort of rustle it next to the microphone. I'll try to demonstrate it now with this piece <laughs> Go, of paper. Please don't. That would be a note. A musical note. <laughs> of the yeah. alien mode. We don't have any change here, but. Yeah, anyway, go on. <clears throat> oh, God. So you don't get this type of uh, musical knowledge when I'm not here. Yeah, I know, right? Thank, thank, thank you again. Thank you for coming. That's, That's what, what she said. said. <laughs> Um, so it was a 
actually uh, the very first hit song released by the Motown label in 1959. Did it make a lot of money? I, I believe so. <laughs> Barrett Strong made a lot of money. Barry Gordy as well, I bet. <laughs> the Beatles decided to lower the key and do it in E instead of the original in F. And why was it hard to record? So they nailed it and They ran out of tape, I think. I think that's the actual thing that says in a book somewhere. So yeah, so essentially what happened is na- they nailed it in seven attempts. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's totally made up. I think. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> in the books that you can't read. Yeah. <laughs> so picture one. No, hang on, hang on. You're not very far from the truth. They nailed it in seven attempts, but with many overdubs. So many that the final stereo version had to use a separate mono mix in each channel to avoid more tape-to-tape copying. That's always an underdub. (laughs) (laughs) What? An underdub. (sighs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm so happy this is almost over. I mean, it's almost over for you guys that are listening, but not for me. (laughs) (laughs) This is is a life sentence. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a great track, to be fair. fair. Especially um, their live versions are just amazing. The other night we were in the car and uh, I have the anthology tape and uh, we were listening to Money. Um, one of the live versions that is on the anthology. It's just, it's incredible. I think yeah. I prefer the live versions to the... I prefer live versions to a lot of songs by a lot of bands. You know? <laughs> no, well, actually, John Lennon didn't. He, he was a record guy. You know? Yeah. I always prefer live versions. They got so much more... The crazy thing is that Money was also on the Decca tapes. And I know, I mean, obviously, it's not as <clears throat> polished as the one on, with the Beatles, but Lennon's vocals are there, and they're brilliant. So I honestly, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, they rejected the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to. I would love to have seen that guy when they became big. Oh, I think he wrote a book or something. Like, how, how can you even, you know, show your face around anymore? You know. I'd love to see his like. You can imagine that he was like really cocky, you know. Yeah. Guitar groups are on the way out. <laughs> You're on your way out. <laughs> and uh, so this is the end of the album, closing with uh, "Money," which is a great number. Uh, they wanted to do the same thing that they did with "Twist and Shout," so put in a very, very, you know, upbeat song at the end. I mean, "Money" is incredible. And um, it's a cover, just like Twist and Shout. It just leaves you with, you know, so much energy. Now, I've mentioned before uh, the track listing that our American friends had in Meet the Beatles. Kind of pissed off the Beatles in January 1964. So hear what George Harrison had to say. We always had complete artistic control from the outset. And we took great care over running orders, having the right songs in the right places and good sleeves. And it was all done with a bit of taste. But straight away, they started screwing that up in the States, holding back tracks from albums so that every two albums released in Britain, they could release three over there. But still, everything we did continued to be in pretty good taste until the contract expired. And then they started shoving out all these packages with crummy sleeves and everything. It doesn't bother me as long as they keep paying the royalties. Hashtag don't bother me. (laughs) 
To be fair, though, he still seems pretty bitter. <laughs> yeah, he's an interesting character, George, wasn't he? Yeah. So I'll read you the track listing. Okay, are you ready? This is going to be very annoying. Oh, is so, this the American bit? So this is Meet the Beatles. That was released on the 20th of January, 1964. I want to hold your hand, which already feels wrong because it's a single. I saw her standing there. Again, wrong. Because <laughs> this is from Please Please Me. This boy, it won't be long. All my loving, don't bother me, little child. Till that, till that was you, hold me tight. I want to be your man, not a second time. I can't help but think there was some conspiracy of the American markets. Because they, you know, Americans like always want to be the best at everything. And who's this like goddamn British band? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know we've got Elvis? We've got Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, well, he's like a little Brits. <laughs> and then we got, um, in April 1964, the Beatles' second album. That opened with uh, Roll Over Beethoven, then Thank You Girl. You really got a hold of me, devil in her heart, money. You can't do that, which is from Hard Day's Night, so just... <laughs> Long Tall Sally, I'll call your name. Please, Mr. Postman, I'll get you, and she loves you. It's just, I don't yeah, know, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's disturbing to me. It's disturbing. <laughs> what a great song, Devil in the Heart, their version. I don't even know the original version. We'll listen to the original version in a minute. Drums at the start. Ringo. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great song. Yeah. Anyway, do you want to add anything besides how much you love in her heart no <laughs> I think people should come and watch the shakers yeah that as well if you want um, you don't play devil in her heart <laughs> no but if you want those early songs yeah oh my god so many of these songs are actually always in your set list because you play three hours every Sunday anyway well uh, we really hope you enjoyed this episode um, advertising the shakers. <laughs> advertising the shakers. This, uh, yeah, it's uh, it was a shakers advertisement, uh, and um, around that we built an episode. Um, yeah, thank you very much again. You've been gigging for four days in a row, <laughs> and uh, um, you have a sore throat as well. Mm. And um, of course, uh, we're here, Port Cat podcasting at <laughs> midnight <laughs> at midnight actually midnight. yeah the episode Jesus is gonna Christ. go out tomorrow uh i don't know when i'm gonna be editing it but um you're done you don't have to do anything else <laughs> um so thank peace you <laughs> peace out secret <laughs> <laughs> again the office if you watch the office please Please. Please. I got such like a. It's like I completely forget like how to speak English sometimes. Clueless style American accent. Please. Please. <laughs> well, uh, I'm so sorry because sometimes we just open, you know, we just digress. Feel yes. that um, that's that's impossible. We've uh, learned a few things tonight. We've learned how to record money. 
<laughs> thank you again for that that Just was a fountain of knowledge <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> yeah so are you gonna come back for a hard day's night so she said <laughs> <laughs> i believe though from the songs that you always say that you like hard day's night might actually be your favorite one yeah possibly because that's gonna be so exciting. All those John songs that are just aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> like the the sound version of someone punching somebody in the street. Wow. This is an that excellent form of entertainment. Intense. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for listening. Um, we hope you're gonna be listening to with the Beatles this week to celebrate with us, and uh, I hope that some of the facts that. Um, we told you today are facts that you didn't know and that like might... how to record money oh my god <laughs> and that are possibly gonna make you enjoy um uh, the songs more <laughs> maybe less now <laughs> who knows um thank you very much for listening thank you very much liam for um technical knowledge on yeah, how to disturbing record. every <laughs> single thing i tried today yeah thank you very much but don't worry before we record a special episode for our day's night i'll we will seek psychiatric help <laughs> <laughs> possibly and uh, don't worry because the podcast will be back before then anyway although the beatles actually recorded so many albums <laughs> so fast that it's gonna be hard to keep up and do all these special episodes but we're gonna try our best thank you very very much and i'll see you next time ciao can i say that something <laughs> <laughs> no powerful stuff. <laughs>